0: This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. The whole idea of democracy is you win by persuading people with the strength of your arguments, and the losers accept the outcome without violence. But as the January 6th insurrection shows, race plays a huge factor in who has to win or lose gracefully, whether the stakes are political or life and death. Why? And what can be done to change that? Black Grief, White Grievance, coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. One of the most disturbing moments in recent racial history here in the United States came in August of 2017, This was the Unite the Right rally where hundreds of white supremacists marched through Charlottesville, Virginia, chanting racist slogans and attacking counter protesters. Dozens were injured and anti-racist protester Heather Heyer was killed. In the wake of that violence, then-President Donald Trump made his infamous remarks about being very fine people on both sides. Our guest today argues that both movements do draw from the same emotional place, grief, the idea that some essential thing is being taken. For black folks, it's the loss of freedom, dignity, and the often violent loss of our lives. For white Americans, it's the loss of their undisputed place at the top of the political and socioeconomic hierarchy. And the real fight is over who has a right to resist losses and who is supposed to bear them in silence. Juliet Hooker has devoted her career to studying this tension. She's a professor of political science at Brown University with a focus on how race and identity has played out across history and across the Americas. Her new book is titled Black Grief, White Grievance, The Politics of Loss. And she joins us now. Professor Juliette Hooker, welcome to A Word.
1: Thank you, Jason.
0: So to me, one of the greatest things a political scientist can do is put empirical and the scientific method to concepts that all black folk know. What inspired you to write this book?
1: So I started writing this book after Ferguson. I was watching what was happening, the militarized response, the violence that protesters were enduring, and seeing a lot of the criticisms that the protesters were receiving for the ways they were going about protesting and, and not living up right to the legacy of the civil rights movement in some people's eyes. So as an academic, as a political scientist, I was like, I'm not an activist, but what I can do is start writing about this and trying to figure out what's going on here with the way in which we're always policing, literally, but also in in these other ways, how black people protest injustices they face. That was 2015. And then in 2016, of course, we had the presidential campaign, and then you saw all of these people gravitating to the Trump rhetoric that was sexist and racist and anti-immigrant, and it was like, wait, so there's this mobilization around Black death, around Black grief, but at the same time, you also have these other people who are being mobilized around these claims that white people are being displaced in the United States. And so I thought, okay, we have to think about these two things simultaneously because they're happening at the same time.
0: I'm curious whether you were a political scientist or not, even though you were inspired by Ferguson, what was the first time you can remember noticing how white grievance was more important than Black grief or white pain was given this sort of patience and deference in a way that it wasn't given to Black people?
1: This is a pattern that happens all the time, right? One of the things that I talk about in the book is how often white grievance displaces Black suffering, right? So we start paying attention to the folks who are, who are making these claims rather than to the actual thing that people are suffering. So if you think about, you know, something like the NFL protests, which were the kneeling for the national anthem, which was so peaceful, right? What could you say about that? More peaceful than the game. Exactly. And yet some people were so offended by that. And then the focus became on how this is taking disrespectful and their feelings rather than on the thing that the athletes were trying to protest. So I think we have this pattern that is ongoing and it's really hard to pin down for me at least, like one moment where it happens because it happens so often.
0: You've centered this idea of loss as like a potent political force, especially on the issue of race. I, I think, I'm curious, if you look back through history, can you give some examples of how Black people versus white people respond to, say, loss? I think to myself how Black people responded to Rodney King how Black people responded to Trayvon Martin. What are some other examples of both communities responding to loss, instead of maybe even how law enforcement, let alone the law, responded to it?
1: So I think a good example is actually the civil rights movement because we now have this romantic memory of it. Oh, we had these peaceful dress protesters and they were so civil and everybody changed their minds and everybody came together. We have this sort of narrative. But in fact, it took so much heroic action, so much forbearance for people to protest peacefully in the face of what they were encountering. And MLK said this himself, as soon as you have these rights on paper, which is just the beginning, you have the racist backlash, right? You know, there's all of these ways in which you see this resistance. I talk about one of these photos from the school desegregation battles. Folks are out there jeering and bullying these children because they feel like they're being displaced in some way. So I think that's a good example where you have supposedly this like, iconic moment of black people protesting the right way. And yet you have this immediate white backlash to undermine what was achieved.
0: So Fox News and other media, we got Newsmax, OAN, all their coverage is sort of framed in this sort of narrative. You're losing your safety. You're losing your homes. You're losing your way of life. And it's not being lost for generic geopolitical reasons. The loss is at the hands of woke white people. The loss is at the hands of black people, at the hands of immigrants. What do you think is the root of that? Do you think, because I think a lot of times people question, did Fox News create white grievance or did Fox News simply galvanize the grievance that's always been there with the population?
1: I think the answer is that they galvanized it and created it. One of the things that I argue in the book is that if we look at the history of the United States, every moment of, let's say, progress towards racial equality has been followed by tremendous racist backlash, by the deployment of white grievance to undermine those gains. We see that right after the Civil War and you have the abolition of slavery And then, you know, the overthrowing of Reconstruction and the re-imposition of Jim Crow in the South, the height of then lynching and racial terror. Every moment of progress is followed by this racist reaction. And so I think when we look at what's happening with Fox, there's no doubt that conservative media is amplifying this feeling and trying to use this rhetoric of white grievance to mobilize voters. But it predates the role they play today.
0: We're going to take a short break and we come back more on the new book, Black Grief, White Grievance. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the book, Black Grief, White Grievance with Professor Juliet Hooker. On this program, we've spoken several times about how black survivors of racism, particularly the families and mothers of victims become like political symbols. When did this start? And how has black grief been politicized? And I'll give you an example. It's not just mothers of the movement, right? There is this sort of, in my view, almost this mammification of the grieving black mother. And that's an acceptable image. It's not the father crying. It's not the younger brother crying. It's the working-class Black mother crying and begging for something from the white powder familias who is the judge or the cop or the member of Congress. When did we start seeing that?
1: So I think that a lot of folks date this emergence of this kind of iconic figure of the grieving Black mother to Emmett Till and the work that Mamie Till did to make the loss of her son matter, right? So she is really an iconic figure in terms of somebody who engages in really powerful and important grieving activism, right? She turns her loss into this moment of public mourning that galvanizes the civil rights movement. But one of the things that I think we've lost sight of is that now we have this expectation that this is what black people do. There are these happy birthday videos that were created about some of the victims of police violence. And there's one with Philando Castile's family. And they talk about people in the community asking them, what are you going to do now? And they're like, what we're going to do is grieve. So one of the things that it does is it creates this expectation that Black people have to become activists in order to gain justice for their loved ones who have been killed. And part of what we don't see there are the costs of that. So even if people do it because yes, they want to create change and they want to address these issues, there's a cost and there is a space that's been taken away from people to just be human.
0: We often see when black grief is happening that there's a recentering. Somebody tries to hijack the conversation. Why does that happen? Is it white people insulating themselves? Who is hijacking these conversations and who are they hijacking it for?
1: You know, I think we often approach politics with this zero sum mentality. If you're paying attention to somebody else's problems, you're not paying attention to mine. Somebody else's gain is a loss to me. For example, the Black Lives Matter catchphrase, when that emerged and then the people who would reply and say all lives matter. Right. right? Mm-hmm. That to me is like the perfect example yes, of course all lives matter, but the issue that people are trying to highlight is that actually black lives don't matter to the same degree but there is this sense that even paying attention right to those losses that are impossible to deny is somehow taking away something from them or taking away attention from them you know this is something that is happening in the media but also is happening with ordinary people who are being mobilized by this fear of being displaced
0: I'm curious also about the idea of when these narratives get hijacked, what we see about the hierarchy and the symbolism of hierarchy of people of importance. I can think of a personal example as somebody who works in the media after Dylan Roof assassinated nine people at Mother Emanuel Church, including a friend of mine I remember in public discourse that... While myself and several other people who were reporting and talking about it were talking about how this is an act of racism, an act of violence, Pastor Clemente pinckney he, he wasn't just a friend, he was also a pastor, he was also an elected official, this church had political importance, and yet immediately, Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz and other prominent white politicians wanted to reframe it as an attack on Christianity, because Christianity is coded white, and so how do we learn about hierarchy in our country, identity hierarchy in our country when things are hijacked. Talk a little bit about that.
1: So there is definitely a way in which we have been trained, we have been conditioned to value some lives over others and to see some losses and not to see the suffering of some groups. And this is why one of the things that I talk about in the book is about how people mobilize around loss. And for some people, even in order for their losses to be acknowledged as losses requires this activism. A good example of this is AIDS activism in the 1980s where people just did not recognize the suffering that gay folks were experiencing and there had to be this enormous mobilization in order for there to be a response to the AIDS epidemic and for people to start seeing, oh, these are human people who are losing their loved ones who require care and concern. So I think one of the ways in which we see the way that white supremacy is working is in terms of whose losses are we immediately attentive to, even when sometimes they're not real, right? Even sometimes when there's feelings of loss and who are the people who need to do all of this extra work for their losses even to be made? visible or for people to care about them.
0: Critical race theory is like a part of your scholarship. And we've talked a lot about the fact that critical race theory is not taught at the elementary school level. Most people can't even define what it is. But under the guise of fighting critical race theory, we've seen tremendous efforts in local school systems around the country to sort of erase history. How does erasing history make it harder for the nation as a whole to understand white grievance. How does erasing history make it harder for the nation as a whole to understand Black grief?
1: One of the reasons that people have become so invested in policing the teaching of history and erasing teaching either Black history or history that highlights the the role of, of racism in the formation of the United States is because it precisely allows, especially white folks who are invested in this and in clinging to this notion of racial innocence, right? This idea that they can see the U.S. unproblematically as this country that's committed to freedom and democracy, Without paying attention to the ways in which that the country has also been built on, let's say, dispossession of Native Americans on the second class citizenship for African Americans and others. And so I think part of the effect of not dealing honestly with that history is that it's a mode of refusing to acknowledge the losses that black people have suffered and continue to suffer. And also, it allows white people who feel aggrieved to claim that they're being somehow the victims whenever you try to have a conversation about race that makes them feel uncomfortable.
0: We're going to take a short break. We come back more about Black Grief, White Grievance with author Juliet Hooker. This is a Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with Professor Juliette Hooker about her new book, Black Grief, White Grievance. You know, a cruel irony for Black folks throughout history is that when we're not grieving and not losing and fully participating in our democracy, that's when we're targeted for violence. A lot of the overt white supremacy resurfaced in our politics after Barack Obama's election and re-election. What are some of the other historical examples of that and what have been the best strategies for preparing ourselves as a people for these sort of generational backlashes?
1: So there is a, a quote that I cite in the book of Frederick Douglass, and he's mocking fears of people who are wondering, okay, what happens after we abolish slavery? And now we have all these freed black people. And they start saying what we're going to have is as a result, is we're going to have this black emperor who's going to be ruling over these white subjects, and they're going to have this court of many shades, right? And I call that this phantom of Black supremacy, that every time you have any kind of progress towards racial equality, the specter of Black domination is what a lot of people start to fear and start to experience and react to. And I think we've seen that in so many moments throughout U.S. history. And actually, I think the 2008 example is a really good example because you know it's hard to remember now but that initial moment of the end of obama's campaign when it was clear that he was going to win and he was going to be elected like there was this whole sense of oh, we've reached this post racial moment The U.S. has finally conquered its demons around race. And then the Tea Party backlash happens. And Mm. all of those things now, in retrospect, you're like, how did people believe that? But they really did. And I think that's the pattern, right? This pattern that, oh, let's pat ourselves on the back because we've made so much progress. But at the same time, there's always resistance, first of all, which is why it takes so much activism and so much struggle and so much heroism on the part of Black people to make even these gains, but there's always resistance. And so there's always immediate racist backlash that follows. That's the pattern. And we're in another moment of really severe backlash right now.
0: A lot of the concern that you hear from activists, journalists, even elected officials, is that we're in this sort of post-truth era where it doesn't really matter what the facts are, people are going to operate off of what they want to operate off of. So what options does that give us? Because, for example, many of the the grievances that white people have and a large numbers of white people have are based on things that are just factually not true. Yes, the white population in America is shrinking, but that's not some global conspiracy. That's just birth rates and immigration and people getting older. So how do you battle white grievance when it's based on things that are untrue and people seem resistant to facts.
1: I think one of the things that's helpful to understand is, as I argue in the book, is that a loss doesn't have to be real for it to be perceived as a loss, right? For it to be felt and for it to be deeply mobilizing. So I think part of the problem is when the response is like, that's not really happening. But people are still being mobilized by those what I call anticipatory losses, right? Because Mm -hmm. in many cases, the fear of demographic change, that's not happening right now, right? But it's this thing that's happening in the future that you're imagining as this apocalyptic change in which you will be completely displaced and subjugated that is driving your politics right now. So it's this form of anticipatory loss And I think one of the things that is also often driving it, often the other narrative around white grievance is that it's being driven by economic anxiety and this economic precarity, as you mentioned. But actually, when you look at these moments of of where people are the most aggrieved. Some of them are these kind of symbolic losses, right? So things like the 1619 Project, or, you know, the critical race theory panic, or remember when people were mad that Harriet Tubman was going to be on the currency, or they're mad about the Little Mermaid being black, right? It's these like symbolic things that really aren't transforming patterns of racial inequality in the country that are really mobilizing. So I think part of what we need to recognize is that it's these narratives that are being constructed around these anticipatory losses, this fear of displacement, that's really driving some of the anger and the mobilization.
0: We're heading into the 2024 presidential election. And Trump has for years basically said, any election where I don't win is not legitimate. Now, some of this is just going to be a law enforcement issue. Some of this is going to just be legal issues and battling voter suppression state by state. But for people who are political activists or organizers or in the media, what's the kind of language that you would like to see based on your work and your research? What are some changes in coverage or language that you would like to see in the next year to battle against this sort of anticipatory grievance, to battle against this prepping of 40% of the United States population to be mad if they don't get their way regardless of facts? What would you like to see changing in our our public discourse and our press and even amongst some
1: activists? So I think something that is actually really harmful in the way in which we're covering this moment of real threat to democracy in the U.S. is the frame of polarization, that we're equally polarized on both sides. And that's the problem, because actually polarization isn't the problem. The problem is that some people are putting forward this very racist and reactionary political project, and they're willing to dispense with democratic norms and with democratic institutions in order to carry it out. So I think part of what the media, as difficult as it might be to do, would be to to see it as part of its job to call out folks who are actually working to undermine U.S. democracy. That's not a partisan thing. That is just something where, in fact, there is an asymmetry between the two parties on this, Right, that there is one party that is right now as a substantial faction that is Really um, trying to undermine US democracy from the local level, where they're trying to take over local election boards or trying to remove people from office who reported results accurately, that there is a real threat to US democracy and that it's coming from one particular place rather than trying to make it this frame about, oh, we're so polarized and we can't listen to each other and that's the problem. No, the problem is the folks who won't accept the legitimate loss. You started the show by talking about how we think about what we should do in democratic politics as persuading other people. These folks aren't committed to persuading, right? They're just convinced that they should be in power. And that's incompatible with democracy. It just is.
0: Juliet Hooker is a professor of political science at Brown University. Her new book is Black Grief, White Grievance, The Politics of Loss. Professor, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word.